Good afternoon, and welcome to Everyday Law. I'm your host, Bob Clark. Everyday Law, the show where we talk about the things that happen to everyday people when they have encounters with the law. Today, we have the privilege of having Ian Anthony of the Howard County Public Defender's Office. Welcome to the show, Mr. Anthony. Thanks for having me. It's my pleasure. As always, the discussions on this show do not represent the opinions of Howard County Community College. And insofar as we discuss the law, we are not dispensing legal advice for your individual consumption. Should you require a lawyer, it is vitally important that you contact one and acquaint them with the specific facts of your case. With that said, let's dig into today's show. So you're with the Public Defender's Office. Tell us a little bit about the Public Defender's Office. I work for the Public Defender's Office in Howard County. Um, we represent indigent Marylanders. So we represent the poor. We represent the mentally ill, children, um, anybody who's in need of legal assistance but can't afford it on their own. Um, and I'm with, I'm with the felony division. So I handle um, some of the more serious cases that come through our office. Um, we also have a misdemeanor division. So do you just try cases in Howard County itself, or do you go elsewhere? I'm only allowed to try cases um, in Howard County, much to the dismay of some, some clients who'd like to bring me on in other counties. I can't. So you encounter people periodically who have a case in Howard County and see what good work you do, and they want you to go with them elsewhere? Um, sure, you could say it like that. It may not be a function of any good work that I do. It may just be a function of trying to keep one attorney across the same client, which is certainly more comfortable. You know, if they have a lot of goings on and there's some in Howard County, some in Carroll County, they want to keep the same lawyer, but unfortunately we can't. I gotcha. And do the people who you represent pay you in any way? No, okay. not in monetary. Okay. So I gather that you do get some other psychic benefits out of representing people who are otherwise disadvantaged. Yes, I love what I do. Okay. So is this something that is a calling that's been in your head for a long time, or how did you end up in the public defender's office? I Well, when I went to law school, which was sort of a change from what I'd been doing anyway before that, I thought I wanted to do something in the international human rights area or LGBT law. Um, those were very ripe um, for the picking when I was in law school. But um, as I went through law school, I went to the University of Maryland, which is very heavy in public interest. They, I realized that there's plenty of work to be done right in, in Maryland and right in Baltimore, which is where I grew up. Sure. So um, I quickly found, an, found a, a home right here in Maryland, and I didn't need to look too far internationally or you know whittle myself down to one community. Um, and that's once I figured that out, it, there was no going back. I know Maryland has a lot of good clinical programs. Were you involved in those during your law school days? Yes. They had a clinic. It was a special clinic in criminal law while I was at the University of Maryland run by uh, professors Michael Milliman and Jerry Deese. Sure. Um, and it was, to, it was focusing on what we call the Unger cases or the Unger clients. Those were clients who um, they were serving life sentences after trials in the 70s that were um, violative of, of some bedrock characteristics of our justice system. And so we had filed- Could I just ask you to, sure. to give a general idea what you're talking about oh, absolutely. for ordinary mortals? Absolutely. So when you go to trial, there's the judge who's the what we call the trier of law and uh, the finder of law, and we have the jury who's the trier of fact. Okay. So if there's, um, if there's an issue of law to be decided, it's up to the judge because the judge is well-versed in law. If there's an issue of fact, it's up to the members of the jury, the fact finder, to decide whether or not they believe the drugs were yours or whether or not you pulled the trigger, something to that 
that effect. Sure. So when you have a trial, you're supposed to have those two separate facets. If you have an objection that's raised, you don't let the jury handle it. You let the judge handle it because you're arguing a rule, right? And if you have a factual issue, did so-and-so commit such and such a crime, that's for the members of the jury to decide amongst themselves in deliberations. Back in the 70s, um, I don't know the specific years, but there was a period of time in Maryland where judges, in their instructions at the cl close of a trial, when they tell the jury, here's what the law in Maryland is, and here is the lens through which you're to view and evaluate the evidence, um, they would instruct the members of the jury on these very important foundational characteristics of our justice system, reasonable doubt, presumption of innocence, um, all of these terms that we all know and we hold dear as Americans. Sure. And then they would say, but what I'm telling you is advisory only, and if you don't agree with it, you don't have to listen to it. So they would they would say that you know, you know, so and so is is innocent until proven proven otherwise. That presumption carries through with them. They would give that whole instruction, and that they need to be proven guilty beyond a reasonable doubt, um, which is extremely extremely important in our justice system. But then they would say, but you don't really have to listen to that. And so, wow, um, right. They, they, so it's, in, in essence, they made the jury the trier of law and fact, which is not proper. So the Court of Appeals over a series of decisions. The Court of Appeals being the highest court in the state of Maryland, effectively the Supreme Court of the state of Maryland, correct? Yes, okay. yes. Um, I'm sorry, I'm, That's okay. I'm going quickly. That's why I'm here. <laughs> Thank you. But um, the Court of Appeals of Maryland, through a series of decisions, um, you know, realized the error that had been carried out and not only found that it was error, but that the people who'd been affected by it were retroactively entitled to some sort of relief. We call it post-conviction relief because sure. they'd already been convicted. And so the public defender's office in Maryland was left with a couple hundred cases where those jury instructions were erroneously given and it amounted to some sort of relief that they were due. So we started a clinic at the University of Maryland Maryland to handle um, dozens of these cases, and I was one of the law students tasked with filing the petitions to reopen the cases and try to get them some relief. I had I handled four of those cases, and I believe all of them resulted in my clients um, who are now being out um, on the street, um, living their lives. They'd served, you know, four decades. Oh my lord! And what's important is that it's not that. Um, it's not that anybody's getting away with anything. You know, part of our job as public defenders is to make sure that rights are um, safeguarded Surely. and that the state is held to their burden. And 100% of the Unger clients, all of them who've been released, which is now, I mean, I don't know the exact number. I want to say it's between 100 and 200. They have a 0% um, recidivism rate. They, uh, with the exception of maybe a speeding ticket or something like that, they're all um, very productive members of society. They're wonderful men and women. Um, and it just goes to show the rehabilitation that can undergo, that one can undergo while in the justice system if things work the way they should. And these were people who were convicted of some of the most serious aggravated felonies, murder and rape and what have you. And they're, you know, we, it just, it, the lesson I take is you can't lose hope. Um, and I never do. That's why I'm a public defender. But that's the lesson I try and remind other people of. That is a wonderful lesson to have in the law. There's not enough people who feel that way, I'm afraid. I th think that's true. So when we talk about these people and recidivism, what we're saying is that despite the fact they were convicted of pretty heinous crimes, they're not committing crimes anymore. And that's an admirable thing for our state 
penal system that they were able to assist these people, or maybe the passage of time also is an effect of that. Is that fairly accurate? Yes. I think that um, one thing you're seeing is by the time these men and women were released, they were you know, elderly. They're 60s. They're in their 70s. Um, so I think they're adventurous or um, capricious, you know, youthful days are behind them. But they also were rehabilitated, right? The punitive aspect of the sentence, I think, arguably had been carried out. They'd been rehabilitated. They were certainly ready to reenter society, um, at least intrinsically they needed to be helped so we helped make plans for them to make sure they had a place to stay a place to work um, but you know by and large it's been a huge success and I think it it hopefully can be a catalyst for other um, states jurisdictions to take a look at at our system of, of life and figure out or sentences of life and figure out is there another way um, so we don't just lock people up and forget about them so is there anything systemic that is comparable to this mistake that was made by the trial courts back in the 70s presently that you're aware of? And I mean, was that a function of the Court of Appeals, again, the highest court in the state of Maryland, saying that the court could kind of tell the jury to disregard the law? Or, or was that just a, a persistent mistake made over and over again by the trial courts? I think it was the latter. I don't think the Court of Appeals had um, – I'd have to go back and really trace the sure. jurisprudence, but I'm not, I'm not sure that the Court of Appeals had given that broad amount of discretion to trial judges. Inherently, I think that there's always uh, a deference to the trial court because it's their – you know, they're the gatekeepers for the trial. So their responsibility is to make sure that trials run the way they're supposed to run. And there's always this deference to them and their discretion. But when they overstep to that degree, then that's when it becomes the responsibility of others to bring it to the attention of people who check the record and make sure that these mistakes aren't continued. I'm not aware of – I don't know that there's anything that I can say I see now that I would say is similar to that. Okay. I mean, this is something – Any other that, jurisdictions that seem to have systemic problems that you're aware of? Well, I mean, I think there are plenty of um, – there are plenty of issues in the justice system, sure. but um, with respect to the specificity of what was at issue in Unger and the related cases, and, and Merle Unger, the namesake of those cases, is still incarcerated. Oh, my. Um, so the hundreds of people who were released as a result of, um, of that, you know, that case um, have... Unger to thank, but Unger, I think he got a new trial and was reconvicted. So it's not that we're just reversing these cases. The evidence stands, the evidence stands, the convictions stand. Um, but I'm not aware of any specifics of that situation that I know carrying out, being carried out elsewhere that aren't being caught. I just think that it, it sheds light on, on the human capacity for change um, and the ability for people to, even if they've done really dark things in their past, it doesn't define them. So just out of interest, we've had some prior discussions on this show. We've covered a lot of legal topics. One of the things we often seem to digress into is the United States Constitution versus the Maryland Constitution and the Maryland Declaration of Rights. Was Unger based upon United States constitutional guarantees or state constitutional, or was it something altogether different, or do you know? I've, um, I believe that they found um, that it was a violation of basic bedrock char characteristics of of American justice okay. that are founded 
in the Constitution and carried into the Maryland Declaration of Rights, um, just because the nature of what they're saying is all of these things that you're telling us, um, Your Honor, we don't have to listen to. So yeah, the proof beyond a reasonable doubt part, that would trouble me a little bit. Everything. that away. Everything. I mean, the judge instructs on the definition of what a second degree assault is. So if someone's sitting trial for second degree assault and you explain to them what it is, and then they say, but if you don't want to listen, that's advisory only. Okay. Now the judges say that's the, you know, it's binding. So you have to listen to what I've said with respect to the law, but the rest is up to you. So they have fixed it, but it, uh, you know, it's, Certainly, you could find, um, you know, where the where the problems arose, both in terms of federal constitutional law and state. So, how many of these cases actually got retried? If you have any idea, um, I don't know the number that actually went to trial. I think a lot of what had happened was the prosecutors um, recognized what had happened and. Um, then looked at how much time these people had had served and said, we'll offer you life suspend all but time served or life suspend all but a term of years or perhaps a flat term of years, I'm not sure, sure. Um, in exchange for a plea of guilty to what you were found guilty of at the trial. So a, a lot of the cases I don't think actually ended up in new trials. I'm aware of maybe a handful. There was one in Howard County. I, I believe Howard County only had two younger clients. I handled one and a colleague handled another. Um, I, um, her name's um, Deb Salt. She's a lawyer who handled another case. I know that that was a trial that ended in a, in a not guilty verdict. Um, but I'm not, I'm not sure of um, exactly how many went to trial. I would suspect not that many. At any rate, those are the stepping stones that motivated you to get into criminal defense, I gather. Yes, that was, those were some of the stepping stones. I'd sort of found my background is in theater, and I realized uh, through the Maryland National Trial Team that being in a courtroom is all about storytelling. And I say storytelling not in a fanciful um, fictional way, but in telling your making sure your client's voice is heard and telling their story, and it's up to the jury to decide which story, um, you know, is the truth, um, if either. But um, once I stepped foot in the courtroom, and I sort of found that overlap between my theater background and my love of the law and that sort of argumentative analytical thinking, I realized that I wanted to be in a courtroom. Then it was, to, then the Unger cases were, I think, that, that fed the public interest aspect of um, what drives me and that was, launched me into criminal law. I don't think that, civil law is interesting, but I don't think that I could do that all the time. There's certainly justice to be, to be had and to be found, and you can certainly make an impact on people's lives. But for whatever reason, my affinity is for the criminal law. The stakes are higher in my estimation. I've been a civil lawyer for 36 years, and I would say when I do try criminal cases intermittently, when there's a possibility of someone going to jail, that is rather different dynamic than you know whether your client gets $45,000 kind of thing. I'll defer to you on that and not, not – uh, I'll reserve judgment only because I think that – again, I think that there's true justice to be had when you fight for the little guy, which you know I don't know that I'd ever work for an insurance company or a governmental agency. And when you're fighting for the little guy, you know that $45,000 may be the difference between right. a life-changing surgery or not. And I certainly can get behind that. But for and I agree with you that there is something different about the criminal side, um, and I don't know if I could put my finger exactly on it, but that's where my passion is for sure. So tell us a little bit about the Howard County Public Defender's Office. How many lawyers are there? How do things work generally? The Public Defender's Office, we have um, at the Howard County Office, 
we have 12 lawyers. Um, I, I believe we're at 12. And we're generally split half and half. Between felony and misdemeanor? Yes. Okay. Um, and we the district court level handles, they have um, special jurisdiction over uh, misdemeanors in the state of Maryland and certain felonies like theft. And then you have the circuit court that has general jurisdiction and they can they can take any case that they'd like. Um, they generally will only take the cases that are worth, you know, the, when the juice is worth the squeeze, so to speak. They let the other cases go down to the district court. And we have... Um, about half of our attorneys in the district court and then half of our attorneys in the felony court. That's not exactly right. It's more like five and five. And then we have our supervisor um, who is in charge of, she's the district public defender for the entire um, district, which is District 10, which is Howard and Carroll and County. Carol, and her right, name yeah. is Carol Hansen. Sure. Um, and then we also have a juvenile attorney, uh, Mr. Avery Burdett, who is right now um, he's on an extended leave from the office, so we're shuffling around a little bit, which is what we do. We're fungible to a certain degree. So there, are, it's, essentially, you can think of it like six in one and six in the other, but it's really probably more like five and five, and then we do a little soft shoe when we need to. So how do they go about assigning cases? Is it arbitrary? Is it are there people with subspecialties that you know what? How's it work? Well, in district court, uh, the goal is to provide vertical representation whenever we are able to. That is um, quite difficult given the volume of cases. So what we te- what we find. What do you mean by vertical representation? Um, what we were speaking of earlier. So okay. if um, you know. Ms. Moore, I'm making up a name, sure. has three cases. Um, it's good to try to keep her with the same lawyer. Sure. Or if she has one case, but that case gets moved around on the docket from a November date and then it gets postponed till after the new year, it's it's important for Ms. Moore, this hypothetical person, to keep me as her lawyer for every court date sure. so that she doesn't have to reinvent the wheel every time. Surely. In district court, because of the sheer volume, it's very difficult to to make that happen 100% of the time. But the goal is always to have that happen. So the way it will work is someone will come to the commissioner's office. They'll determine their eligibility based off their financial situation. Can can I interrupt you there and just ask you a little bit about that? Do you know anything about... One of the things that happens when you're out in the practice of law is people come to you who have, say, a DUI, and you kind of give them an idea what a private lawyer would typically charge for that in an MVA hearing in combination, and they're horrified, and they think that maybe they'll go get a public defender. And what are the parameters, generally speaking? Well, on October 1st, we changed um, our intake process. So it's new. Okay. Um, so if I misstate anything, I apologize. We will not hold you to it. Um, because we're only a month and a half after when it's happened. But now the commissioner determines eligibility. So someone would go to a commissioner. And the commissioner, I believe, follows federal poverty guidelines. So would determine- a family of four with such and such kind of stuff? Yes. So they'd okay. look at your income. If your income falls below federal poverty guidelines, then you're automatically qualified. Okay. If you are above federal poverty guidelines, then I believe they'd look at your expenses, your expenditures, and they would. If your expenditures are a hundred and one percent or more of your income, then you're insolvent and you are indigent. So hypothetically, if I made ten million dollars a year, but my expenditures were ten million and one dollars, could I qualify to get a public defender? Um, I would leave that up to the commissioner, but I'm in. In the past, I believe there have certainly been situations where, I mean, a $10 million client I've never seen, but there have been clients where, you know, um, after we've talked to them a little more, it's been like, okay, you know, um, 
maybe maybe you can afford a private lawyer and you're just not. But certainly there are situations where someone may make money and you'll look at them on paper and think that they have more money um, than they actually do because when you look through, you realize that rent, food, you know, basic expenses that no one can really live without in any functional way are taking up all of their income and they don't have savings, they have credit card debt and all of that. So there may be a situation where someone makes more money but they spend more um, sure. I don't want to say spend like it's a choice, but their their expenses may outweigh their income. I understand. Got to be a tricky job for the commissioners to undertake because I presume people do not arrive at the commissioner with their income tax returns with them. They have the ability to look up um, with their social security numbers some sort of income okay. wage information. I'm not sure. Okay. I don't see any of that. They don't. I mean, I, once they once they go to the commissioner and they get approved and they say yes, I want the public defender, then they come to our office. We do our own intake to find out what kind of case, who's it going to go to, and then it goes into the case assignment um, process. If it's a district court case, but I yes, I would agree with you. I'd imagine that they have some sort of a challenge around that, gotcha. and they're probably still trying to find their their solid ground. But. Um, the the district court process is by date. So if I'm in district court doing the criminal docket on December 7th, um, then I will get all criminal cases that are assigned on December 7th, and that's determined by the court because the court calendar d- dictates that date. If those cases then get postponed past the 7th, I would try to hold on to those cases for okay. the next date. In felony court, we get a case assignment. Cases cases are assigned every week um, on Wednesday, which is tomorrow. We'll sit down. We'll go through the cases. We'll talk about what kind of cases they are, what dates they're set on, and we'll you know you know it's. It's a very organic process. They'll be like, oh, I've got two second-degree assaults here. One involves this kind of facts. One involves these kinds of facts. Here are the dates. Who wants them? And if anybody seems drawn to it or knows the client, they'll take it. And if nobody says anything, then um, Mr. Lewis Williman, who's our, our circuit court supervisor, will say, Ian, sold. And he'll Congratulations. Hand it to me. Yeah. yeah. I mean, there's no... You know, they're they're all. You know, I love all my clients, so I'm not worried about what cases I'm going to get. Sure. It's just a matter. It mostly comes down to scheduling. If I'm in trial, I shouldn't take too many other cases. But eventually, you're going to have to start doubling, tripling up. So that's so. What percentage of your time are you in trial? In um, actually going to trial? Yes, sir. Um, I th- I would think <clears throat> we have. We probably end up in trial once every two to three months okay. um, on average. And that's in the circuit court or the district court people in a circuit different situation? Okay. In, in front of a jury. Sure. In, the, in district court, I mean, those cases, uh, because they tend to not be complex litigation, um, there's not – you can't file – I mean, you can, but you, you're not – there's really no way to argue pretrial motions. District court, you, you don't get motions to eliminate. You don't get um, dates to argue any mo- – when I say motions, I mean motions if there are any – to suppress, that kind of thing. Right. If there are any constitutionally-based motions or evidentiary-based motions, you take those on in the trial. So you can just sit there and say, okay, not guilty. You go first. Um, and that happens on a, on a weekly basis um, where district court – court attorneys if they can't work it out and or you know they'll just say okay cool well let's have a trial your witnesses here let's do it um and so that sort of gets you ready for it's a different pace that's not indicative of jury trials jury trials are much there's much more preparation much more to file in terms of motions motions practice becomes much more aggressive and important and then um, actually taking it in front of a jury probably, like I said, happens maybe once every two to three months from this side of the bar. Sure. I'd imagine the prosecutors 
take it. Uh, you know, they have trials more frequently because they've got if, lots of private lawyers coming at them. Right. If the public defenders have sixty percent of the docket, the other forty percent is still handled by the prosecutors. They have hundred percent. So, I'd imagine they they have trials more frequently than than we do. So, in preparation for these trials, is there a budget associated with, say, investigators and that kind of thing? I I do not know. Okay. I'd imagine. I mean. There's certainly we certainly have budget a budget that we can't blow out of the water. But um, you know, from my side of the desk, if I have casework that I need to do, I'm lucky enough to be. The Howard County office is wonderful. Um, Carol Hansen is wonderful. All my supervisors are wonderful. My colleagues are. You wonderful. have a great job. I do. I love my job. <laughs> I love my office. But so I, you know, I, they tend to let me do what I need to do to get my cases um, handled, to handle my cases the way I need to handle them, and I um, am usually not met with red tape or closed doors. So, so ever. what about scientific experts? Suppose there's DNA, mm -hmm. or suppose it's you know that kind of thing. What 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 do you do about that? We um, we retain our experts. We have a forensic division downtown, and we will send them the case information. A forensic division of the pu the state public defender's office, or how does that work? Yes, I believe that it's um, just the o OPD as a general umbrella for the whole state. I'm not sure how they're divvied up. Okay. Because uh, you know it's very insular in terms of each office has their own office culture. But we, if we need to hire out experts, that goes through fiscal, which is a state budget. So I would have to go through them. I mean, I can't pay out of pocket and then get reimbursed. That's not how it works. So I would submit my case and my request. I would talk on the speak on the phone with the forensic division. I'd say I have a first degree rape. You know, it, it's a mis ID case. The the DNA is very important. Here are the facts. Here's the discovery. I would send them all of that. They would look through it and say, okay, I think that you you'll probably need these kinds of experts. They'll send me the approval for X number of hours at, at such and such a rate. Here's the person we usually use, and then I get the, that's the approval, and then I can go speak with the doctors, the science, uh, the reconstructionists, the scientists, whoever they are, directly, and take the fiscal people out of it. So how often do you see flaws in the scientific processes that are used to prosecute people? I um, I don't know if I can concretely answer that. Okay. I th um, Intermittently? I don't know that I've been doing it long enough okay. to really give you sure, an answer. Sure. I've been in the felony division now for almost two years. Okay. But I have only recently been um, moved up to the really complex cases sure. where I'm starting to regularly retain these experts. Um, but there's there are always issues to litigate. That would be the most... Um, political answer I can sure. give you. There are always issues in cases. It may not be that the DNA was faulty, but you can, I mean, there's always a story to tell. Our clients always have a story. And it may not be that I didn't do it. It may just be that I did it, but it's not what they say it was. I got you. And um, whether or not that hinges on an expert is very case specific. Um, but, um, you know, the experts that we hire are very fair. They're not, you know, these defense gung-ho heavy experts who are like, what do you need me to find? And I'll find it. They're extremely fair. They're regularly practicing doctors, nurses. So they're neutral. In absolutely. This. Absolutely. And there are plenty of times where I submit something and they're like, yeah, I don't see any problem with this. Okay. Um, you know, maybe I would have done something differently here, but the end result was the same. You know, they'll tell me that kind of thing. And then that may shift my focus. Um, and a lot of times it does. But there are also times where I get great. Um, you know, great results from speaking with an expert. Okay. So just generally, if you were a prospective public defender client, is there any advice you would suggest for such people? 
I can't presume to know what it's like to be in their shoes. They've been wronged quite a bit by the system, by life, by other public defenders. So when I meet a public defender, I, um, I, mean, I firmly believe that people need to be heard. I mean, I can't fix what's happened to them in the past. I can't take it personally that they call me a public pretender or that they think I'm a law student, um, you know, because I think they're sincere in, in what they believe. I can only listen and assure them that their trust will not be misplaced in me, but that they don't know me, so screw me. I can't ask for their trust, but if they trust me enough to give it to me eventually, I promise I won't mishandle it. Um, so I would say to um, – I would just say to do what – what's best for them and not let anyone, even me, um, try to try to make them do anything that they're not comfortable doing. It's not my case. It's their case. It's sure. not my voice. It's their voice. And it's not my story. It's theirs. So I need them to, I need them to trust me enough, so, but I can't, I can't force that. And I would never try. Cause if I try, then I'm doing exactly what everybody else has done that that's made them mistrust it. So the only advice I'd say is to just, you do you. I'm, I work for you. I make sure to tell them all that, that you're my boss. So um, I will do what you need me to do. And I, and, I, and I truly believe that. And if I give them the power to do it, then we tend to work very well together. Well, I'm afraid it's time to wrap it up. It's another edition of Everyday Law. Ian Anthony of the Howard County Public Defender's Office, thank you so much for coming in. I would like to conscript you again in the future so we could carry on more of this conversation. Thanks for having me. I appreciate it. This has been Everyday Law. Farewell.